Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Throughout the month of December, the Ringer staff will be releasing their year-end reviews covering the best and worst of 2019 in sports, TV, movies, music, and more. This week, we're getting started with Shay Serrano and Rob Harvilla on the best albums of the year, and Allison Herman and Chris Ryan break down the best TV shows. We'll have tons more in the coming weeks, so make sure to check it out on TheRinger.com. David, during this week's impeachment hearings, Stanford professor Pamela Carlin said the following. The Constitution says there can be no titles of nobility. So while the president can name his son Baron, he cannot make him a Baron. Okay. (laughs) That's a really bad joke. Republicans (laughs) took offense. What I want to know is, is there anything lamer that we could possibly make into a controversy? Wait, they were mad because they the joke referenced the president's son full stop? Yeah, we brought the son into it. How dare, how dare you bring? Well, first of all, it's not really making fun of the son. It's just like referencing his name to make a really bad joke. I take more offense to the joke. I mean, if you're going <laughs> to... So we're saying Stanford law professors should bring better material to the. Yeah, I mean, if you're go- okay, listen. I guess there should be some bar to like making a joke that at all references the president's son. Um, so yeah, if you're gonna come with it, you gotta you gotta come a little bit stronger. Say save it for like a like a right to bear an arms joke or the the. the <laughs> a, looks like he needs a baron hug or something. That's not even that good. Uh, baron a grudge? That would be a good one. Uh, d- d- oh, a barren wasteland. Yeah. Oh, that's our it. discourse that's it. in 2019. A barren wasteland. There you go. I'm going with that. In the segment right here, we are the Beer Baron of Media Podcast. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. media consumers you've got brian curtis and david shoemaker here lots and lots to get to today including the beginning of the attacks on pete Buttigieg. finally we'll also talk about the avalanche of year-end and decade-end top 10 lists your listener mail plus the overworked twitter joke of the week but david let's begin with the latest from impeachment which according to cnn trump now considers something of a foregone conclusion Jeremy Diamond, Pamela Brown, and Caitlin Collins report that Trump and the White House now accept that he will be impeached by the House of Representatives and are mapping out a strategy for their trial in the Senate. Trump tweeted on Thursday, if you're going to impeach me, do it fast. Do it now so we can have a fair trial in the Senate and so that our country can get back to business. By fair trial, CNN says Trump means, quote, digging in on the president's unsubstantiated claims of corruption leveled at former vice president joe biden so a couple things there number one is i'm not sure we've ever had a president in american history come out and say if you're going to impeach me just do it and get it over with which sounds very much like the movie thing you know (laughs) we're being held at gunpoint by the villain uh that's number one number two And this is built into our system, so I guess we accept it at some level. But let me just review with you quickly how what we're doing here. Trump made 
unsubstantiated claims, which is the nice way to put it, lies is the other way to put it, about Joe Biden and Ukraine. He got into trouble by trying to push Ukraine to push that theory for him. Okay? He is going to get impeached for that. And then in the Senate trial, he's going to push that theory again. So do you follow me here? Yeah. Do bad thing, get impeached, and then in 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 the Senate trial, do bad thing again. I mean, implicitly or or explicitly, um, the the Trump defense uh, for a lot of what he's been accused of, dinged for, you know, all varying levels of misbehavior throughout his presidency has been that like he's not smart enough to know better or to know the difference between right and wrong or to have, you know, to avoid whatever pitfall was sitting right in front of him. Um, so in some ways, this is sort of like the perfect endpoint of that or the perfect distillation of that whole problem that like the thing that, that he's too dumb to realize is a, is a conspiracy theory is both going to be what gets him into trouble and, 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 and he, per, he's going to persist into having that be his defense. Right. I think that's right, but how that just takes us into this bizarre loop of unsubstantiated claims. I mean, like I said, the whole process began because Trump was trying to push this crock against what he perceived as one of his strongest opponents in the 2020 race. And now he's going to push the crock again in the Senate. It'll be interesting to see how the senators, the Republican senators, um, react to that because in Congress, I mean, obviously it's a totally different playing field, but even in Congress, it seems like they're much more interested in, in attacking the the structure of the of the inquiry, right? And, 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 and arguing with the refs as opposed to actually defending, you know, the the conspiracy theory about the Bidens that this whole thing is based on. Although, you know, some of them have certainly gone and in, waded into that territory in their in their questioning, um, congressmen, that is. Um, so, I mean, and, and one would assume that, uh, that the Senate would be even more loath to really, you know, sully themselves with that kind of nonsense. However, mm -hmm. if that's the entire Trump defense, uh, and every, you know, Republican Senator has already in one way or another sort of, you know, signed themselves over to him, um, I'm not sure that they'll be able to avoid it. Yeah. What? What defense do we think at this point Lindsey Graham is loath to employ? I mean, is there anything Lindsey Graham wouldn't do? Is there anything the last months, years of his defense of the president makes you think he wouldn't go? I mean, I, 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 again, I'd be surprised. I, we, we think of the Senate as this august body and apart from the House and all that stuff, but there's no evidence that these people are going to do anything else. Now, maybe you're right. Maybe they sort of dig in on procedural grounds. Maybe they dig in on, well, it is a quid pro. It's clearly almost a quid pro quo, but it's not quite a quid pro quo. So I'm going to, you know, we're not going to remove the president. But I would be shocked if it's not mostly Biden at this point, if it's not just muddy the waters as much as humanly possible, the president had a right to do this because he was legitimately concerned about corruption and to completely go down that street. That'd be my bet. Yeah. 
I mean, as ridiculous as this all is, I can't, I couldn't help but think over the past few days. I mean, sort of return to my original thought when this whole mess uh, f- first floated up to the top that Biden's electability argument in the face of this attack, which he knew was coming, just seems so misbegotten. Um, but you know, I guess there's a, I guess there's a way to look at it that if, I mean, that if he, even if Biden is rendered unelectable by this, at least. You know, in 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 Trump parlance, we'll get it over with. You know, I mean, if 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 it's gonna if it's gonna, I mean, nothing ever goes in a logical fashion. So don't so don't you know mark this down as a as a lead pipe lock or whatever. But like, but it does sort of seem like even as unfair as it is, um, I feel like we'll have you know we'll have a better grasp on Biden's electability at the end of this process and. Um, maybe he will have sucked all of that just like Trump wacky auction out of the room and opened up the opened up the field for someone else to march forward. You know, who knows? Who knows? I'm really I'm still I still don't know what I think about Biden's electability up as it pertains to Ukraine. I think I felt when Trump was at the beginning of this scandal and was still pushing able to sort of push that theory, you know, into the fox news media ecosystem and i guess he's still doing it now but i felt it felt more like an existential crisis for biden then especially as he was kind of ducking questions about hunter and not really you know leveling at all with what he thought about the fact that hunter biden was in this job to begin with which was sort of ridiculous even if obviously nothing nothing you know nothing came out of that but now i feel the focus has been so much on trump's impeachment that it may have actually gone away from Biden a little bit. And again, maybe it all comes back when it's in the Senate, but I don't, I don't know how this plays out for him. I don't have a good sense. I think there's also the sort of trap that he can find himself in that he's going to get his positive attention. We just, I think we discussed it in the last episode when he was confronted by the, by the guy at his, at his rally and he about, you know, sending his son over to the Ukraine and all that kind of stuff. And, Biden called him a liar and, and, you know, I mean, kind of stood up to him in this really sort of like, you know, well, emotive way, I'll say. I mean, he, it seemed a little he bit. challenged like, him to a push-up contest. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that was a sort of like if he had that response prepared or if that was a pure spur of the moment thing. But, you know, I think that the campaign, Biden in particular, will look at that, the reaction to that as a net positive. And I hope that they don't get kind of misled into thinking that the that this is a that this is a a winning that, that bringing it up just so he can shoot it down or letting it letting the, the argument persist just so he can have a series of these moments is going to end up being a positive at the end it's not you know i mean as long as this conversation continues um as we saw with hillary four years ago i mean this this is the sort of thing that really affects voter turnout i feel that every candidate we talked about this with beto months and months ago but every candidate is just trying to go viral now mm-hmm. like at the heart of every candidacy is like how can i have this moment and it's like a really nice 35 second twitter clip and with biden it was challenging the guy to a push-up contest and to an iq contest or an iq yeah. test <laughs> which would have been fun i was i was hoping we could do that right now like mari povich style you know let's get let's get the number two pencil out and break the seal on the test and just take it right here you know let's do it right here with biden and and the guy <laughs> in the audience uh legal scholar jonathan turley david who has been a talking head for our entire lives we have been reading uncolorful quotes from jonathan turley for decades and decades 
He was called by the Republicans to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday. Uh, he called what had happened so far an abbreviated period of an investigation, uh, said that Congress had assembled a facially incomplete and inadequate record in order to impeach a president. Let's listen to a little bit of Turley's testimony before the House. Allow me to be candid in my closing remarks because we have limited time. We are living in the very period described by Alexander Hamilton, a period of agitated passions. I get it. You're mad. The president's mad. My Republican friends are mad. My Democratic friends are mad. My wife is mad. My kids are mad. Even my dog seems mad. And Luna's a golden doodle, and, and they don't get mad. So we're all mad. Where has that taken us? Will a slipshod impeachment make us less mad? Will it only invite an invitation for the madness to follow every future administration? That is why this is wrong. How great was that pause for laughter after the golden doodle line? <laughs> you just hear like a chair being moved in the back of the uh, in the back of the committee room. There, that was fantastic. Uh, Charlie Savage points out in his piece in the New York Times that while Turley is making this case that there's not enough evidence that essentially that Congress hasn't uncovered, you know, testimony, for instance, from aides in the White House who directly heard Trump talk about his thinking as it as it involved Ukraine. Mr. Turley only made a passing reference in his written statement to the problem that has bedeviled impeachment investigators. Savage writes, the White House has directed top aides to Mr. Trump not to cooperate with the House while asserting they are immune from being subpoenaed to testify about their discussions with the president. Even though Democrats have been winning in court, Savage goes on to note, Republicans can probably tie things up until after the 2020 election. So translated, Turley is up there saying, look, Democrats haven't gotten all this evidence. Why are they rushing to this slipshod impeachment? They, they, there's all this stuff to find out. Savage is pointing out, well, yeah, because Trump is telling all his aides not to testify to the House and is going to try to run out the clock in court so that if they're ever compelled, it'll be way after the 2020 elections. So again, you sort of get into this weird conundrum of impeachment where the Democrats are are accused of moving too quickly, but they're moving quickly because they have to move quickly. There's, there's no choice here because again, he's not going to help them in any way. And yeah. they're not going to be able to get, you know, John Bolton and, and, and others, Doug McGahn and others without a court order. And that court order may take forever. So again, it just seems like a weird and impossible position we find ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a kind of a continuation of the congressional Republican uh, misdirection, where they, you know, where the pro, you know, the, the the process is is moving along way too fast without Republican input until it gets to a you know a point where it might continue, and they say, well, come on, we've been doing this for long enough already, you know, just let let the let the country get get back together, let the country heal, let's move on. Um, you know, he. I'm not sure that there's many Republicans in Congress that are that would that actually would would sign on to his to to his argument, Turley's argument that that what we need is a much longer and broader investigation into Trump and what <laughs> yeah. he did. 
but you're right that if you know if push comes to shove, they could tie them up. You know, they could they could just bog things down for his, run out the clock. Um, I mean, I just couldn't help but. I mean, you know, Jonathan Turley is, you know, think of him what you will, <laughs> I guess. Um, he's a really smart guy and has been, you know, in, in a lot of ways, a very influential voice. I mean, that's undeniable over the past couple of decades. Um, but I couldn't help but watch his testimony and not just, I mean, it was just like viscerally weak sauce, if I can <laughs> like, like pull a lot of different con. <laughs> Ideas to get a couple of different ideas together at once. Uh, uh-huh. He's, you know, I mean, there's that sort of legal, there's a sort of mo- moment that we've all encountered where like Scalia will write a dissent that someone immediately posts on Twitter is like 180 degrees from a previous opinion that he wrote, right? I mean, and we're all just like, okay, well, I admire the intellectual gymnastics, but if it's in dissent, you know, whatever. You know, I mean, he, he's 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 more partisan than he is doctrinaire, this is a thing that we've kind of come to accept in in, in the modern era. Um, but, you know, I kind of wish that that Turley would have at least had the pride or self-assurance to do a couple of more mental gymnastics if he was so determined to, like, contradict himself. And he did, by the way. He was very contradictory uh, to, you know, his own statements during the, the Clinton impeachment trial. He sure um, was. But, but I mean, but all that aside, you know, I mean, like, I don't demand intellectual rigor, but come on, give us some, give us some flourish, give us some art. And I'm not talking about labradoodle jokes. I was listening to his testimony in a cab in New York City and I get into the cab and it's on, he's just beginning. And I'm kind of like, wow, this cabbie has somehow selected the thing I need (laughs) to listen to today. And this is going to be very handy. And after about four minutes of that, I was like, can we get WFAN on in here? <laughs> Is Brian Lehrer on? Can we can we get something else? I mean, it was just whoo. Uh viscerally weak sauces is is perfect to describe it. A couple more notes to for you, David, quickly. Rudy Giuliani went to Ukraine to film a Martin Scorsese like passion project. Rudy has <laughs> always been uh a person who what the movie industry calls a personal filmmaker. Kenneth Vogel and Benjamin Novak report in the New York Times that Giuliani is meeting with a discredited Ukrainian prosecutor, Yuri Lutsenko, who spread some of the lies about Joe and Hunter Biden's dealings in Ukraine. The documentary series is airing on OAN, where it's hosted by Chanel Rion. Rion, Brian Stelter notes, previously promoted the Seth Rich conspiracy theory, I'm quoting here, and generated controversy for drawing politically incendiary cartoons including at least one about George Soros playing off an anti-Semitic trope. There's also a great picture going around of Giuliani and a Ukrainian MP on Twitter holding up a document. (laughs) We've seen that. (laughs) We also found out from the House Intel Committee this week that Giuliani called the White House several times and also some figure identified by the number minus one before Trump forced out Ukraine Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch earlier this year so congrats to rudy on his documentary series he is i mean i i don't i I, whenever we think about impeachment and trump more broadly i'm always kind of like who how are we what historian is going to sort of put this into some kind of palatable form in 10 (laughs) years or what movie are we going to watch right is there going to be 
you know, somebody going to try to do that Dick Cheney movie treatment to this and, and, and get the comedy and the weirdness, but who's going to capture Giuliani and what that dude has turned into from the butt dialing to now the fishing mission in Ukraine, the weird Twitter content, the interviews, the yelling at Chris Cuomo. Do you have a nominee for who's going to be able to help us understand what a bizarre trajectory he's been on as an actor uh, you or know like a film or <laughs> tom tom wolf type novelist i mean i I'd, I'd take anything yeah i have no idea i mean it's gonna be i mean it's it's it, it's gonna take a, a writer of you know significant ability um <laughs> Or I guess it could just be, you know, I mean, this could be a pulp novel. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the, I mean, it's both, a, you know, an incredibly unbelievable story that that you would have to, you know, hash out in over a thousand over a thousand pages, or it's just this is straight up, you know, rise and fall tale. Um, it's really weird. I'm not sure. I found myself wondering whether he was going to Ukraine to curry favor with the president of of the United States, <laughs> Trump. I mean. Um, be after his kind of uh, apparently um, much uh, discouraged or the the his his bad performance um, previously, where he said he had dirt on Trump or whatever, um, and and which which made Trump very upset and told him to, to get off Fox News. Um, you know, I didn't know if he was doing this because Fox. You know, I mean, because this this is the sort of thing that Trump would see as a positive. He's fighting. He's working with OAN. All these various things that Trump likes. Um, or if this is just actually some sort of passion project, if he thinks this is actually going to help his case to, to go down this path. I mean, I, I'm not, it's, this is a page right out of the playbook of the kind of alt-right social media scallywags of four of, of the last election cycle, where, you know, if everything goes wrong, just turn on the cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to like name it and put it, you know, give any of them the, the credit by name, but, but, you know, we've all seen this move before. It's sort of, crazy to see Giuliani uh, pursuing this himself um, but it just I mean listen Giuliani as you said I mean the the the, the narrative arc is is intense um, but I don't think even the I don't think even the the most the, I mean I don't, I don't think anyone thought that this is the direction it would go I don't know that this is the biggest deal in the, in the world but come on I mean he's uh, under federal investigation or you know there's a giant federal investigation surrounding him he's presumably under investigation and he's in Ukraine filming a documentary series I mean that just like those words are just I, I they're they're crazy coming out of my mouth yeah everything he's done since the 2016 election feels like it has been done so that Rudy Giuliani will be in the news that just Rudy Giuliani will have a reason to exist because I, I don't know. I, I don't know that you can put it all together in any simpler way than that. Like, it's like he didn't get the cabinet job he wanted. Um, he didn't get, you know, some kind of great Trump appointment that would actually put him, you know, in a position to do something, which he certainly could have given the way he supported Trump during the election. So yeah. he has created these kind of, weird extra legal irregular kind of channels for him to just do stuff investigate the ukraine be on a documentary series apparently presumably answer every phone call and text he gets from reporters despite the fact as you say that 
you know, he is apparently in some kind of legal jeopardy or at least potential legal jeopardy. That is just it's wild. And and just I mean, it bears mention that, you know, and this is, again, part of the narrative arc that you describe. But it bears mention that, like, if Rudy Giuliani had sat out the past four years, he would he his Q rating, whatever, however you want to however you want to rate his, you know, the the country's love for him, that would have been much higher if he had just stayed home and done an occasional episode of Meet the Press, you know, in vague, in, in, in mild defense of the president. The fact that he keeps pursuing this stuff, I mean, I guess this is the story, right? I mean, I guess this is the this is part of the, the personality sketch that you're talking about. It's just, it's unbelievable. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the Press Box Pod where they're always gratefully received. We're going to talk about Pete Buttigieg in a minute. But the almost three years that Buttigieg spent consulting at McKinsey and Company has become the great mystery box of the Democratic primaries. It was an overworked Twitter joke to cite another candidate's potentially troubling business career and write, McKinsey is becoming the bane of Buttigieg's existence. (laughs) Thanks to our pal Derek Burke. (laughs) David, a tweet from the Weather Channel India. Not sure I knew that existed. Quote, a team led by Chinese researchers has spotted a monster black hole with a mass 70 times greater than the sun. As you can imagine, that was an invitation for bits. A few of my favorites. Will it absorb my student loan debt? (laughs) And also, damn, that's where my album launch party was going to be. Thanks for ruining the surprise. Thanks to Jake (laughs) Christie for sending that along. And speaking of the Democratic nomination and speaking of Ukraine. On November 30th, Joe Biden announced the start of his No Malarkey Tour. Got the catchphrase painted on his bus, along with the additional catchphrase, the malarkey stops here, in case we didn't get the malarkey part of it. Lots of good gags about Biden's sepia tone language. Uh, Was 23 skidoo unavailable? (laughs) More malarkey, more rigmarole, more referring to money as clams. That's my guy. And finally, uh-oh, another Joe Biden plagiarism scandal. He stole this no malarkey slogan from the campaign of William Howard Taft. <laughs> Thanks to DRN3030. If you made jokes about Biden's antiquated language, see? Congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Before we hit the notebook dump, David, let's pause for a quick break. Family and friends love receiving gift cards for the holidays. And what better way to gift them what they really want than with Happy Cards. Happy Cards make giving personal gift cards easy and stress-free. When you give Happy Cards, your lucky loved one can use them at any of the brands displayed on the card. For your mom, wife, sister, or best girlfriend, check out Happy Her, which includes Macy's, Bed Bath & Beyond, Sephora, and more. For picky teenagers, check out Happy Teen, which includes Barnes & Noble, Regal Cinemas, Dave & Buster's, and American Eagle. And for those last-minute gifts, check out Happy Moments or Happy Holidays. Happy Holidays includes Ulta, Red Lobster, GameStop, Chili's, and P.F. Chang's. Happy Cards contain no fees, they never expire, and they're delivered straight to your door, making it the perfect gift that anyone will love. They have cards for Cheesecake Factory, Macy's, Panera, Bed Bath & Beyond, Sephora, Barnes & Noble, Buffalo Wild Wings, Regal Cinemas, Under Armour, Dave & Buster's, and more all season long. Enjoy free shipping on all Happy Cards orders by visiting giftcards.com slash happy or pick one up today at your local grocery store. Have a happy holiday season with Happy Cards. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. And we got to talk about Pete Buttigieg. 
because he's leading in the polls in Iowa, which means he is now coming under very belated attack. Remember how during that last debate, we all expected Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to kind of unload on him. And it seemed like they didn't because they were, I think the thinking was, I read this a couple of places that maybe they thought Buttigieg was just going to go away. Maybe that was going to be one of those weird month long boomlets that then he disappears. Well, it hasn't. So now Buttigieg has aired a campaign commercial attacking Sanders and Warren sort of proposal for free public college, suggesting the policy was wrong because it would pay for the education of the very rich. Sanders responded in an interview with Chris Hayes, naming Buttigieg something he had refrained from doing from doing to the most part, I guess, at that point. Warren has also began directly addressing Buttigieg, asking him to open his private fundraisers to the press and reveal the clients that he consulted for during his time at McKinsey, which is 2007 to 2010. To this point, Buttigieg has maintained that he hasn't been able to make that information public because of an NDA he signed. His campaign maintains they have asked to be released from the NDA, but McKinsey has not agreed. Where do you come down on the whole McKinsey thing? Is this something that it's just the one sort of unknown part about Buttigieg's biography and that's why we're so fixated on it? Or is there something more to it, do you think? Um, I mean, both, I guess. I, I think that... I don't know. I mean, listen, there could certainly be something damning there. Um, and I think, you know, in a world where um, there's always some sort of national obsession that involves investigation, uh, be it the, you know, Trump's tax records or Obama's birth certificate or whatever else, it makes sense that people are interested in it. And I think it makes sense in a very general way that people are interested in it. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the what the way forward is if indeed he's not going to be released from that um but and i and i personally i mean i i highly doubt there's anything damning there it does it seems sort of like um i don't even i don't even know how to describe it even if there were something damning there i find it hard to imagine that most of the people who are who are you know, kind of raising alarms about about this dark period in his life. I I find it hard to imagine that they would be. So I I I think it's easier to be vocal about a three year gap in somebody's work history than it is about some consulting work, even if this even if the client was problematic. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. I'm not. I I don't. I I I just wish that everybody. I wish that anybody who's like you know, upset about this actually can actually think it through. I mean, it it would be, it would certainly be one thing if he were like the lead proponent for, I don't know, like Saudi Arabia's political expansion into the United States or something. But like, you know, if he's just doing consulting work for, you know, less than reputable companies, which is most consulting work, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's a job. He's, you know, relatively young it's a it's 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 you know it, it's a thing that i think we would all be forg- we would all be willing to forgive him for it's just unfortunate that it's coming out you know i mean that, that it's being posed as, as this great mystery i think i mean I, I maybe i'm wrong maybe there's something there but this is the kind of the we talked about it before this is the pete buddha judge moment and it's going to be the pete buddha judge takedown moment we are you know less than a, or about a week exactly removed from 
Michael Harriet's piece in the root titled Beat Pete Buttigieg is a lying MF, which <laughs> which then had a follow up <laughs> uh, in which Pete Buttigieg called the author on yep. the phone. Um, the most Buttigieg-y response imaginable. Sure. I, I mean, call I, I just, you so that we can talk about this. And I think you see it all over cable news and everything else. It's like the it's the increased um, focus on Buttigieg as a legitimate candidate, as opposed to the sort of you know um, just kind of semi humorous candidate up to the up to a certain point. Yeah, um, or kind of has, interesting candidate that will give a bunch of interviews but not really win anything. Now we're into sure. oh, he may win Iowa. He may win Iowa and New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. I mean, I and, think in another cycle, Pete Buttigieg would have been Andrew Yang, but but some combination of the world that we live in now and the literal existence of Andrew Yang on the debate stage <laughs> sort of has helped legitimize Buttigieg in a way that he might not have been legitimized before. Um, and that's not to say he's an illegitimate candidate. I just mean in terms of like, you know, whatever our perception I mean, of, Kamala, of electability Kamala is. Harris and some of those people would love to trade places with him because yeah, he's managed to do what they, they couldn't do. Which mm-hmm. is make himself a real player in this race, you know, and for sure, I think he's surprising both of us. I mean, there's so there was a Times editorial piece about the McKenzie business, which noted that part of it, the reason it's important, is because Buttigieg has such a small resume compared to a lot of these people. That's true. So, so if it's like three ish years at McKenzie, the Times points out that's like twenty percent of his post college career. So, you know, again, maybe it's nothing, but we're trying to understand all these people and that that is not a not an insignificant part of Buddha Judge's life, if, if even if it amounts to nothing. The the other part that we're we're you and I are kind of dancing around here is just the whole McKenzie thing, right? Remember when Chelsea mm-hmm. Clinton went to McKenzie back in the day? Yeah. And that's just kind of seen as a place where liberals go to sell out and make money. And it has that unique, you know, sort of sort of stigma within the world that you and I live in. I mean, mm-hmm. that's part of this, right? Is that, you know, it's like it brings up all the things that lefties hate about Pete Buttigieg. McKinsey sort of symbolizes them. Like, look, this dude went there and consulted for three years, you know, instead well, of doing something else. And I think to take that a step further, it also sort of that that has a material effect on sort of his origin story right or his or his 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 background narrative um that he can't talk about that could be viewed as a as a convenient defense against you know the sort of admission that he's more of a institutional moderate democrat than he would paint himself as right mhm yeah that's true it's, it's the, I mean, that that's we've talked about that tension, right, between I'm this guy, I'm this mayor in Indiana versus I went to elite colleges and went and was at this consulting firm that so many other people have been at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I think the McKinsey thing is it just has so much more traction again in our world, Twitter world. I just I do 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 reg, quote unquote regular people even know what that is. No. Does that like if you say, well, he was a consultant, does that? Does that like trigger some alarms in the broader voting populace? I kind of think not, right? Everybody's I mean, like, think, "What's that?" I mean, obvi- obviously, you know, uh, having a clear picture of somebody's resume and, and being able to to know the details of it, being afforded the details of it, is a positive thing. That said, I'm not sure that most of the voters out there know what have any concept of what Joe Biden did for the eight years of the Obama presidency. And that was right out there in front of, you know, I mean, I'm not sure that like three years 
and somebody's like early work life is 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 that significant in the grand scheme of things but you know but we should uh, we it, should it, find it, out i mean i will say there we is should a, find there out. Is an absolute journalistic imperative to find out what the hell he yeah did for there. sure because it doesn't it doesn't have to be bad we just want to know if we're if we're considering electing these men and women president of the united states we want to know everything about them there's just there's almost nothing that that's not important to know or at least interesting to know david i want to talk to you about year-end top 10 lists <laughs> please i feel we have hit a content sweet spot because it's not only the end of the year it's the end of the decade so we're seeing this flurry of top 10 lists about everything we're seeing top 10 movies of the year we're seeing top 10 movies of the decade we're seeing top movies for every year of the decade uh i flipped uh, over to the new york times website today and saw you know top 10 moment what do we call what do we when when they do their top 10 in art what do they call it it's not like it's, it's not like top 10 moments in art i don't know how you even do that they're top 10 dance list um, oh yeah I think I've said this on the pod before, but I used to be obsessed with top 10 lists. Like I, mm-hmm. I would use my dial up connection. And I know you were too. Like when oh, yeah. Roger Ebert had his top 10 movies of the year in December. And I'd be like, Oh man, I, I got to get on this. And I could never figure out how he'd seen all those movies that weren't opening for two weeks. Cause I was stupid. I didn't understand it. <laughs> I was so obsessed. Two things to me have happened to top 10 lists. Number one is blogging and then social media removed the authority or at least the exclusivity of the critic because everybody Mm -hmm. could make a top 10 list and it turns out it's not that hard to make. But I think the second thing that's happened lately, and again, here I am sitting in the psychologist chair for, for journalists, which why not? Um, is that when I read these on Twitter, there's just absolute avalanche of people telling me what their best movies for every year of the decade were. I feel we've stopped arguing about movies. I don't see a lot of engagement like that's the best movie of the year. That's a truly great movie. No, that's not a great movie. And people are just using a top 10 list to express themselves Mm -hmm. as a form of digital expression more than anything. What do you think of that? Sure. I mean, it's a way that people can sort of like, self-identify or, or to, you know, you, you can, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not straightforwardly a clicky thing. Um, but, but there is, you know, a lot of that, um, kind of signaling, I guess, to use a, uh, you know, a, a, a term I don't know. I yeah. don't like to use a lot I, going I have on parasite number one on my list. What does that say about me? What does that say about my taste and my willingness to seek out movies like this? Right. There's, yeah. there's a ton of that. Is there not in a lot of the stuff? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean that that's that's what it, I mean. It's, it's there's also this element of it to me where like, I mean, we're there. There is this necessity to to do these things. It's the end of the year, but we're living in an, in an age where like time matters less and less, right? I mean, every, I feel like every three months there's an article about how just you know we lose track of time in the modern age, right? I mean, there's like days, hours run into days, run into weeks, run into months, um, and. You know, the, the I mean, maybe this is a little bit ephemeral, but like the only reason why we care about the end of the year is because I mean, the, the year list is because it's the end of the year because, you know, eventually the Oscars will be approaching and, and we do rank things by year. But I don't I, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like 
we, that you're right. The barrier of entry is so low and, and in a good way, right? But you see so many of these lists that where people are just like, here's my top 10 movies. By the way, I didn't see these five, you know, so like, you know, just, <laughs> but it's, it's weird. It's just like a race to see all the good movies. And then you put them in, you put them in some arbitrary order. Um, you know, when somebody, it's much more interesting. If, I mean, if, if everyone's going to do it, I wish there were more people thinking outside the box a little bit or just like dissenting loudly from just any of the movies that are on every single list. Yeah. Remember when Elvis Mitchell put the original Pirates of the Caribbean number one yeah. on his New York Times list? And that was just like this moment. Again, that was when those kinds of things mattered. And Elvis Mitchell was such a just fascinating critic to have a job at the New York Times. And like, I remember, I remember mm-hmm. that was just like, whoa. It was really, and, and I was, by the way, really, really wrong. But it was really, really <laughs> interesting. It was good. I remember finally when I think was it Armand White put uh, Sahara, Matt, that Matthew McConaughey, Steve Zahn <laughs> movie, Sahara on his top ten list. And I like, oh my gosh, I th- I think we were, I think that we were living together at the time. But I remember like going, like I had seen the movie, I think, but I like went, I went back to re- like to rewatch it specifically because I wanted to see if it was actually good. Um, yeah, I mean, come on, please, dissent more. We want, we need, we need more, we need more like wacky top ten lists. If you're everybody that does a, an earnest one, should also just do like a, you know, a, a, the the top ten list I would make if this wasn't really my job. I understand the human need to display your erudition to earn a merit badge by putting that up and saying like I've seen all these movies. I made time because I'm a interesting and culturally sophisticated human. I have personally never felt the urge or the need. Well, let me let me let me say it slightly differently. I've never felt that anyone on earth would care what I think the top ten movies of the year are, or the top movies of the decade. I just I just don't possess I don't possess that idea. Even even people inside my house, I don't think I just have never thought like you know I want to share this because I don't think anybody would care what I think. I've seen a lot of movies. By the way, I'd say the same thing about sportscasters. Brian Curtis's top 10 sportscast of all time. I've never thought, I've never had the urge to make that list. I never have because I don't, I don't think that I have any special knowledge or, or that ranking those things in order. And I guess that brings me to another point about top 10 lists is I think as a journalistic society, we're sort of listed out at this point, you know, and I do not absolve us at the ringer because we love to indulge too, but James Bond movies ranked Spider-Man movies ranked uh, cute star Wars childlike beings ranked. We rank everything now. Mm-hmm. Everything is power rankings. And I guess there's nothing wrong with that. Some of those lists are fun and I've certainly loved some of the ones that we've done, but when you when you see the entire world in power rankings and you do them, the comic ones all the time, there's almost no room to do a top 10 list at the end of the year because it feels like everything has been served up to us in that form. Yeah, it certainly does water it down. Um, But, you know, I think that there's, I mean, as someone who doesn't get to engage in, especially like movie culture, but pop culture in general, as much as I once did, this is the time of year where, you know, I don't. I also don't have as much time off in the holidays as I once did, but, you know, it's nice to take what little time off I have and and just kind of hit the highlights. Just find the people I, find the people I like and let them tell me what to watch. 
Yeah, so that that Libby Hill made this point on IndieWire, and I think it, it does hold true. There is so much TV right now mm-hmm. that the one value of these lists to me, rather than actually ranking the thing, is just reminding us of all the stuff we haven't seen. Right. Same with movies. I said Parasite a minute ago. I have not seen Parasite. I would love to see that movie. And when I see these lists, I re- it reminds me like, oh, I got to go see that. You know? So I think I think if you make it, if there's a defense of top 10 lists at this point in history, it's that there's so much stuff out there mm-hmm. that we need these things to kind of just direct our lives and remind us of all the stuff, especially uh, dads like you and me, that we're missing. Yeah, I th- yeah, that that's definitely true. I mean, I and 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 listen, I mean, it, it I mean, the, some of these lists may feel a little bit like, you know, the NFL draft where like just no matter how we were ranking them a month ago, miraculously, like there's three quarterbacks in the top 5 again every year and it's sort of like, you know, it's just sort of this this magical this this magical you know, regression where like every single reviewer has seven or eight of the top 10 movies every single year as if there were only that many good movies, exactly that number of perfect movies made, you know, over the span of 12 months. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I value that very much. I mean, there's some, at some point I need to know what everybody agrees on because those are the things that I probably need to, you know, hit if I've missed them to keep my brain at least somewhat culturally relevant and functional. Speaking of movies, segue, nice. we talked last week about the reviews for Martin Scorsese's The Irishman and this whole frame that people love to employ, which is the old guy still has it. And you and I (laughs) turned it over to Twitter and said, remind us of some of the old guys and gals who have still had it at various points in history. I got a bunch of nominees, Woody Allen, who has been officially canceled or semi-officially canceled. Remember the Woody Allen comebacks Mm -hmm. with match point, Oh, yeah. Uh, and there were, I feel the Woody Allen comeback stretched all the way to like Mighty Aphrodite. I mean, Woody Allen has been like For sure. having the old guy still got it since the 90s, at least. Uh, Bob Dylan has oh, been yeah. in like a 30 year long. The old guy still has it frame. Somebody told me Tanya Tucker, which I did not know about, but I'm delighted <laughs> if she's being Man, thought of that. Everybody way. at the CM, was it the CMTs? It was about a month ago or something like that. They had a whole bunch of just like female legends of country music perform. There were, there was an entire, it was, there was like an entire night of, of, uh, she still has it. It was, it was fantastic stuff. Uh, Dolly, Carmel- Part- Dolly Parton is one that every time oh her name is, God. she performs. Yeah. How did we forget her last time? Uh, Carmelo Anthony is kind of oh, currently yeah. enjoying an old guy still has it. Just got a contract guarantee for the rest of the year. Every old golfer from Jack Nicklaus oh to gosh, Tom Watson yeah. has a moment. Any wrestler, someone tweeted at us and was disappointed you didn't bring that up last Just time. any wrestler is great. Uh, Marissa Tomei in Spider-Man Homecoming. I'm not a movie I haven't seen, but but sure, great. And the weirdest one this week, anyway, is from Michael Avenatti. Remember him? <laughs> he tweeted, yes. not tweeted at us, but tweeted, Joe Biden still has some gas in the tank. So according um, to Michael Avenatti, Joe Biden has still got it. Don't write off Joe Biden. Elsewhere in listener mail, listener Josh Coyne sends this along. Guys, I feel like we need to reflect on people constantly making the same, quote, saw insert trending name trending and thought they died. It's getting out of control. Man, 
Josh Coyne, you are speaking directly to me. I actually had a note <laughs> about this in our in future show list because I get on Twitter. I see like Vin Scully trending because Vin Scully turned 92 the other day and every the the absolute control plus V tweet is, oh, my God, don't do this to me, guys. D- you know, I'm I was so scared, but it turns out it was only Vin Scully's birthday insert denzel washington tapping his chest gif <laughs> yeah so what do you so you're saying we just shouldn't make that like if if you are if you see somebody yeah. trending jump to the conclusion that they've died and then realize that they are not in fact dead you are not allowed to tweet about it just do it privately it's kind of like your top 10 movie list just <laughs> hash it all out and then happy birthday vince gully Oh my gosh! Okay, the world the world doesn't need to know that you thought that uh, whoever that like Joe Pesci was dead. Yeah, and if you're a journalist, just go ahead and say, "Happy 92nd, Vince Scully." Here's the piece I wrote about him ten years ago. Just pivot, pivot right to your own content. Just go, just go back to doing <laughs> what you do all the time anyway. <laughs> Finally, uh, Ray Villa or Via sent us a tweet from the Texas Department of Transportation. Why did he send this to us? Because it sounded like the Texas Department of Transportation was trying to get into the press box's uh, pun hall of fame. The department was passing along an anodyne drive safely message on Thanksgiving. And David, I want you to listen to how they did it. This is an actual tweet. Planning on getting basted this Thanksgiving? You butter not get behind the wheel. It would just be gravy if y'all pecan pay attention on the roads or pecan pay attention on the roads to pronounce in the way they definitely don't in Texas. So everyone corn get home safe for those holiday feasts. Wow. Just wow. Somebody in the Texas Department of Transportation spent some time on that. I hope there were a lot of people involved. I hope they were all very excited about that. When Trump talks about the swamp, this is exactly what he's talking about. Make it stop. <laughs> all right. Time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. All right. We, on Tuesday, we covered <laughs> a story about the home of a whiskey baron, which was headlined Whiskey A Stay Stay. Oh, man. As usual, our listeners were way better than we were. Andrew Whitlock said that the story should have been the house that Jack built. Oh, Paul Bransky nice. says in distill of of the night. <laughs> I don't actually know what that means, but that's really funny. Uh, well, I know I know what it means. I don't know how it relates to that story, but it's really funny. Juan Vargas and Mark Whedon say whiskey a go home, which might have been. Oh better. yeah, that's way better. Elijah Wolfson says one more for the home. And Michael Izzo with a great, perfect, minimalist, scotch and sofa. Scotch oh, and sofa. Oh, wow. That is, that is unbelievable. Michael, get your resume freshened up, man. You've got a, you've got a career in this business. Um, David, this week's pun headline comes from David Eldred and Josh Pereira. Josh Pereira, excuse me. It's from the Washington Post. They did a piece on why European luxury sedans are becoming a relic of the past and electric SUVs are on the rise. As a resident of Orange County, I can absolutely attest to this being true. 
because there is not a single wealthy person who is driving a European luxury sedan at this point when they could be driving an electric SUV. Okay. It's all electric SUVs. So the brands hurt by this is your BMW, your Mercedes, your Audi, right? But maybe think BMW. Oh, I was going going right to Audi. All right. What was the Washington Post strain pun headline? Wait, just the BMWs are out and electric cars are in? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. BMW. Um, uh, Is there a particular nickname? Mm, Okay. Uh, On the right track? Beamer, Jim Beamer, Beamer me up. (laughs) That's funny. Drop the, uh, is it, no. Um, Beamer, it's like something on the way out or is it just like a, is it, are we just going general Beamer puns here? Um, Well, we're going general Beamer and what if it interacts with a very annoying, that, Okay, Beamer. Okay, Beamer. Yeah, I knew it as soon as you said annoying. That was it. Okay, Beamer. And pretty good, right? <laughs> That's a good in this analogy. Wait, the Boomer is the European luxury sedan of the past. I like it, yes. Washington Post. Okay, That's amazing. Beamer. That's amazing. Okay. Great. Good job, Post. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production Magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Tuesday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you, Brian. Avoid the headache of holiday shopping with happy cards. When you give happy cards, your loved one can use them at any of the brands displayed on the card, like the Happy Her card, which includes Macy's, Sephora, and more, or the Happy Holidays card, which includes Ulta and Red Lobster, with cards for Cheesecake Factory, Macy's, Panera Bread, Ulta, Bed Bath & Beyond, Sephora, Barnes & Noble, and more. Happy Cards has something for everyone. Enjoy free shipping on all Happy Cards at giftcards.com slash happy, or pick one up at your local grocery store. Have a happy holiday season with Happy Cards.